0: From time to time, you still see the bumper stickers that spell out the word coexist with all sorts of religious and political symbols on them. The Coexist Foundation currently owns the trademark for those bumper stickers, and the foundation says its aim is to bring people of different backgrounds together across divides. The initial logo, you may or may not know, was created back in 2000. It was a Polish graphic designer who was in a competition, entered a competition for an art museum in Jerusalem on this idea of bringing people together from different faiths. It was a simpler logo, but it was this very same idea spelling out the word coexist with religious symbols. The design didn't win, but it got picked up by a number of people who were interested in it and began to gain attention. And by 2003, a group of college students in Indiana had reworked it, trademarked it, and were making money off of it, and were now trying to challenge other companies that were also trying to make money out of it, saying that they owned the trademark. And so the students actually reached out to the original designer of the logo, not to ask his permission to use the logo, but to ask for his support in helping them to sue the other companies that were trying to use the logo. they had never asked his permission in the first place. They just sort of assumed that it was sort of a general thing and they had it and they could do that. And then the designer said this about those students. They quote, promote a feeling that they are idealistic and for peace, but they are only interested in the money. They are dishonest people and I told them to stop. Isn't it ironic? that a symbol that is so synonymous with urging people to get along became such a source of greed, division, and even lawsuits. It says a lot about the nature of man. Whether it's that bumper sticker, or whether it's a popular song like John Lennon's Imagine, or whether it's the protesters who are carrying the signs with the word hate crossed out, even as they're screaming at people that they disagree with, there is this long-running sort of notion, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, that everyone should just set aside their differences, that we should all just lay down what we might otherwise hold to and agree that God is love and he's for peace and unity and tolerance. The problem, of course, is that God then must accept everyone and everything except for people who are judged somehow to be intolerant. So at some level, every man-made kind of God, every man-made sort of religion runs into conflicts and contradictions. I will inevitably want the God of my design to bless my tribe and to oppose the one that I disagree with. Well. Turn to 1 John, we're in 1 John chapter one. We began studying last week, the book of 1 John. We'll be going through first through third John over the course of this summer. Pastor Bob next week will be taking us into chapter two of 1 John, but we, we looked at this opening prelude, verses one through four. And it is John giving eyewitness testimony of Jesus, speaking of what he has seen and heard and touched, not just about Jesus, but about Jesus and the gospel, about the one who came to bring the possibility of eternal life, the one who came to open the way to eternal life, the one who came to enable human beings to have fellowship with their creator. And so John is beginning with that testimony saying, this can be yours through God the Son, through Jesus Christ. If you know him, if you believe in him, you can enter into fellowship with God and receive eternal life. John, as we said last week, is writing largely a message of assurance, writing to believers who are being confronted with false teaching and saying to them, this Jesus that you put your hope in, this gospel that you have believed is true, it has not changed. There are many who are causing them to question and doubt what it is that they have believed. And John is here to say, what you know about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus has not changed. Do not give up on that. And so he is refuting lies, but he is shepherding the believers by saying this is what your trust is in. If you've put your faith in him, don't be misled by some new claim about Jesus being this or that or the gospel being different than what he preached. And so that's how he began in verses one through four. That's the introduction, verse five. In large part, sort of sets the thesis now. Verse five is this profound statement, and he he just bold, unwavering statement. First John 1 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Most translations leave out the word and that actually starts verse five. It, it really does connect it back to verse four. This is the, the message that we have heard from him and and he's just adding on to what he has just said and writing the things that are making our joy complete as he said in verse four and here it is. This is what we heard from Jesus. Verse five then becomes one of the most important verses in the book of first John as, as this thesis statement. John has just said, I'm giving you eyewitness testimony of what Jesus has brought, of what Jesus has proclaimed, and here is what he said. Here is the message from Jesus. And so John is proclaiming testimony that will bring fellowship with God and that will bring eternal life to those who believe it. So it's an important message. And he says, I am testifying to this, and now this is what that message is. Without further ado, this is what we heard from Jesus. It's his way of saying, pay attention because everything from this point forward will all in some way hinge back to this statement about the character and nature of God, that God is light. It is a statement about who God is, and at the same time it is a warning about what God is not and the fact that you cannot make God coexist with that which he is not. That this is who God is, he is not this, and when he's not this, this this doesn't go together with God. You can't set these two side by side because this is who God is and he's not compatible with the other. His starting point is God. It is an understanding of who God is. And so any message about eternal life, what it is to have life after death, any message about fellowship, about union with our Creator doesn't start with us and who we think we are. It starts with God and who he is. And so regardless of what you think about God or what you think you may know about God, Jesus starts here and says, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Now that should tell us we need to understand what Jesus has meant by that. If this is that important, this is the message that he gave. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We need to understand what Jesus meant by that because it is both a declaration and a warning. It has to do with eternal life and fellowship with God. The, the eternal life is verse two. It said that Jesus and his gospel reveal eternal life to man. Verse three said fellowship with God is possible, but it must be on God's terms through Jesus. And so this morning, Want want us to see what God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, what that means. I'm going to give you two, two explanations of what that means and then two implications that are a direct result of that. First, what does it mean that God is light? And we get the answer by looking at the contrast John gives in the next verse. Verse six says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The notion of God and light goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, right? The very first recorded words of God in Genesis chapter one, verse three are let there be light. And so we know that God made light. We also know that when God first appears to Moses, it is in the form of a a burning bush, there is light. When he leads the the Israelites across the wilderness, he does so with a pillar of fire and a, a, a bright cloud. It's essentially by light that he leads them. God is the one that scripture repeatedly says who brings light to people who are walking in darkness. We saw that back in Isaiah, that God shines the light, that he points to the light to show them the hope that there is in Jesus. But that's, that's not John's focus here in particular. He's not saying God is the light or God gives light. He's simply saying God is light. And then he shows us by way of contrast what he means by that. There is light and there is darkness. There is fellowship with God and there is separation from God. What we'll see in verses seven through 10 as he addresses sin and sin's presence is that sin is darkness. There is light and then there is darkness and darkness is that which is opposed to God. Darkness is evil, that which is impure, that which keeps man from having fellowship with God. So at its most basic level, when verse five declares God is light, verse six tells us that means God is morally perfect. He is sinless. He is pure. God's ways are right. They do not fall short. His character doesn't have a trace of darkness. There is no sin or imperfection in God at all. God is light, points to the fact that God is perfect. And in fact, his perfect light is such that it accomplishes what light does in the darkness. It exposes. When light comes into darkness, it now exposes what is present there. And in the same way, the holiness of God shines into the darkness of our own souls and exposes man's sinfulness. The the fact that God is light not only reveals his moral perfection, but as Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6, it reveals our guilt. It exposes us when we see Him in in His glory. And so the connection of light to purity and evil to darkness is not one that we're sort of importing into the text. It was something that was known culturally and many other religions use the same sort of idea, light, good, dark, bad, that the one is connected with purity and the one is connected with evil. And John himself builds on this. If you scroll just down a little bit, 1 John chapter 2, verse nine says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in what? Darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, he says it again, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So you see again the comparison. Light is love of brother, darkness is hatred. And so the one is reflecting moral purity and excellence and the other is reflecting that which is evil, that which is not compatible with God. Similar theme back in Isaiah 5, verse 20, you'll remember this verse, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's been saying all throughout scripture, those who practice evil are in darkness. And so God's word compares light with good and evil with darkness. And so to say that in God there is no darkness is to speak of the total absence of evil in God. There is not a bit of, of sin or imperfection in God. His nature is good and right. That's the first meaning of God is light. It speaks to the moral purity of who God is and his nature. Second explanation though, We deduce really from John's larger writing because John uses this word light a lot, especially back in the Gospel of John. Here in 1 John, he only uses it about a half a dozen times. In the Gospel of John, he uses it about 20 times. And, And the word light we see in the Gospel of John very early, right in the prologue to the Gospel of John. John 1, let me read verses 3 through 5. This is about Jesus. John says, excuse me for just a second. John 1, verses three through five. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, in in the word, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word who became flesh, we know from the Gospel of John, that, that prologue, is Jesus. God's agent in creation. And it says there that in him was life and the life was the light of men. And what does that mean? We know that Jesus is the light of the world and that he brings salvation, but that's not the point here because if you look at the context, it's just got done saying all of creation comes into existence before him. The context is God bringing creation into existence. God speaking and saying, let there be light and there being this creation then that unfolds. And so the word, Jesus is pre-existent God through whom all creation comes into existence. And so what it's saying when it says, Jesus is the light of men, saying Jesus is the life giver. Jesus is the one who sort of ignites it, if you will. Jesus is the source of light through which the Father brings it all into existence is through him. And so in 1 John, it's really that same sort of connection now when he describes God as life We have in the Gospel of John a connection of Jesus to physical life, created life, and in 1 John, the connection of God now to spiritual life. He is the giver of life. It is God who gives eternal life. He not only turns on the light of creation and gives life in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm, God is the light who gives eternal life to those that he is saving. One writer put it this way, in this world, there can be no life apart from light. So in the spiritual realm, God as light is the true source of all life. God is light. God is pure. He is holy. He is perfect. And he is the source of eternal life. That's why this is such a Pivotal statement, verse five, in terms of everything he said in the introduction about eternal life and fellowship with God, it can only come through the one who is light, and that is God, it is his to give. What John's about to get into in this letter is, is these teachers and others who walked around and claimed, I, I have fellowship with God, I'm a friend of God, I, I, I walk in the light, and yet they are at the same time denying Jesus. They're they're saying the wrong things about Jesus, they're saying lies about Jesus, and their lives don't look at all like the righteousness of God, and so they're claiming on the one hand to walk in the light, and and in fact, as we'll see in a moment, some even claiming to be sinless, And, and so John launches from here to say, God is light. Start with him, not with you and your concept of yourself and trying to make yourself good. Start with him and understand only he is morally right and true and perfect and it is up to him to be the source of eternal life. And if you are to walk with him, it will have to be on terms that he has established. Instead of starting with God, the false teachers are starting by elevating man. Man is basically good. Man is, is, is an okay creature, he's special, God loves him, and so the God now that they make has to fit their view of man as being essentially good. Same sort of mentality that dominates the thinking today, that man is essentially good, unless he's you know, in that really, really special bad category. And First and John is immediately meant to confront this error, these lies, and, and to give the truth. There is only one who makes the way to life, and he is perfect and he has done so, and you need to hear what he says, not only about what he says about yourself, but you need to understand what he says about himself. And he says he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the meaning of God is light. He's he's holy, and he's also the source of eternal life. So, two implications now from this. I I wanna read verses six through 10. As we do, watch for the phrase, if if we say. If we say, that's the sort of John's trigger phrase, if we will. First John one, six through 10. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Because God is light, and that means that he is holy and pure and that he is the source of eternal life, there are two implications here for those who wish to have fellowship with God, those who are receiving eternal life from him. So there are two implications for us who profess faith in Jesus Christ this morning. One is you must walk in the light, and number two is you must be humble about your sin. You must walk in the light and you must be humble about your sin. Those are the two implications. That phrase, if we say, three times in this passage he uses it. And it is really John's way of saying, some are claiming this. Some are saying, to put it in 21st century vernacular, some are saying, well this is my truth. This is what I say. This is my idea about my fellowship with God or my nature or my sinlessness. This is is what I believe. And And I believe I have fellowship with God and I believe I'm not a sinner. I believe you shouldn't call me a sinner, that I'm a good person. That's, that's what he means by if we say. This is sort of the, 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 the cultural sort of argument saying, I say this, and so if I say this, must be true. At least it's true for me. And so the word of God takes these statements, what John is doing is he's taking these statements and he's holding them up against the light of God, against the truth of, what God, of who God is and what God has revealed, and he's examining these statements, and he's showing them to be lies. He's taking our if we says and if we claim this and checking to see whether they hold up. There's really two statements. The third one in verse 10 is kind of a summary statement that, that just takes the second one and, and exposes it even further and, and shows the implication of it, but two truths. Number one basically says this, I can do what I want and still maintain a relationship with God. I can live as I please, say what I want, enjoy what I want, and have perfect fellowship with God because I, I set the terms because, because, because I, I, I say so essentially. If I say I have fellowship with God, that's how it is. I can tell you I believe in God even if functionally he has no lordship in my life. Even if the things that I do and say show no reflection of the life of Christ whatsoever, I, I can say I believe in God even if my life does not reflect holiness and righteousness. I can, I can do what I want and say what I want and still claim walk with God. I can be spiritual. I can believe in a higher power. I don't need the Bible to tell me what to do. I have fellowship with God on my terms. That's what number one is saying. Number two, you see in verse eight, if we say we have no sin, this this one equates to the the, the, the common view that says, hey, I'm not a sinner. Don't, don't go throwing that term around, that, that sinner term. I, I make some mistakes, and I'm not perfect, but of course, nobody's perfect. We always have to put that caveat in. I'm just like everybody else, and I have my shortcomings, and I've got my areas I need to work on, but I am generally a good person, and I don't see what I do wrong as sin. Now, to be clear, the first century version of this, that John is responding to is a little more mystical than than what it is today. Back then, it rested on the idea that the, the body was bad and the spirit was good. It was this distinction between flesh and spirit, so much so that what I do with my body is not my spirit. And so my spirit can, in essence, be in harmony with God, can have a perfectly good relationship with him, and yet my body is doing things that are instinctive, sort of impulsive, almost being like an animal sometimes, but that's just my flesh. That's to be expected. My spirit is still what is ultimately pure. And so that's where the argument is coming. We we, we may look at that and be, how can anybody say, I I have no sin, I do not sin? That was the the, the basic flaw that undermined the whole thing that, that, that said, I can do anything I want in my body, it's my spirit that matters. Now most people today aren't quite so nuanced in their arguments, they simply balk at the whole category of sin. Because they started with the premise that man is basically good and designed a God who then is ultimately loving and tolerant and that God, he, she, whatever, must accept everything, certainly loves me for whatever I am and whatever I do and certainly isn't judgy, certainly isn't going to make me feel bad. He's certainly not going to label me as a sinner. He wouldn't do that, Not, not my God. My God only speaks of sin when there is clear, egregious evil, right? You know, if it's genocide or rape or murder, those fit in that category. The rest, that's all what feels good to me, and my God is a God of tolerance. And so he's as I design. So the same false teaching still exists. It's different form from the Gnosticism of the first century, but it is essentially saying, I can define deity to fit my life, to be my custom-made God, and so my sin, if there is such a thing, is really not an issue. It's just shortcomings that I just need a podcast to help me get over that and change those, those nasty little habits and, and be better, do good, right? Just just go out there and do it. The heart of John's method, message, right, is to believers. He's trying to give assurance to those who are truly believing in Christ, and so for us, The implication here is first to know the error, to understand what the error is and be able to confront it. But John also wants believers to know, if you're a true believer, that you you belong to God and have fellowship with God and that you have eternal life. And so the first implication really of, of God being light is that we must be walking in the light. If you want assurance of your faith in Christ, if you want assurance of fellowship with God, If you want assurance of having eternal life, then walk in the light. The the opposite is what he gives first. He says if you continue to walk in darkness. If your life is consistently marked by disobeying God, by not doing what God says, by disobeying his will, then something's wrong. You cannot claim fellowship with God if you do not believe that your sin is what separated you from him and that your sin is what needed addressing at the cross. You cannot have fellowship with God if you don't understand the essence of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was because of our sin that was in our place and that it was necessary. You may claim to be a follower of God, but if your life pattern is consistently marked by contention with other people, by greed, by arrogance, by discontentment, by dishonesty, by sexual sin, by cursing, by drunkenness, by bitterness, by refusing to submit to God-ordained authorities, or by any other rejection of God's law, if your life continues to follow a pattern that is in rebellion against God that says, I I just don't want to do this. I want to do what I want to do. And if your life is marked by that pattern, as verse 6 says, you are not practicing the truth that God has revealed. That is not fellowship with God, that we sort of set the rules and say this is what we'll do or not do. Maybe you just neglect to do the good that you know you could do in loving your neighbor and serving your neighbor. James 4 says even that is sin. That you choose to, to not do what you know is good. And it's sin because you know what God says to do and you've ultimately established your life priorities and said this one isn't important enough. This one isn't high enough on the list of priorities. That is sin, that is not fellowship with God. I may know it, but I don't feel like doing it and if that's my pattern, then can I really claim to have fellowship with the creator? If you want assurance that you have been redeemed from sin's grip, and that you have been delivered from the punishment for your sin, then walk in his light. That term walk constantly speaks of how you live, how you do daily life. Know that God has established purity and righteousness. Understand what God has commanded. Walk as one who is grateful for Jesus Christ, shedding his blood in your place for your sin. Live differently, change your friends, deny your flesh, resist temptation, ask God to help you to walk in the light. Do whatever is necessary to walk in the light, to have fellowship with God. If you're unwilling to do those things, if you're unwilling to confront your own sinful desires, if you're unwilling to undergo the kind of change into the image of Jesus Christ that scripture repeatedly describes, then you may be walking in darkness and not light. The warning here is a real one because there are many who say, I'm there, I'm a Christian. Less, I think, in our culture today, the polls show that number's declining. It's not cool anymore to say I'm a Christian, and so less will say that sort of just off the cuff. But many do. Many say, oh, yeah, I'm I'm Christian. I I believe in God, or I'm spiritual. And yet, by their lives, they're doing as they please. They're speaking their own truth. And God's has maybe a, a partial place in that. Maybe some of what he says is worth hearing, but not the rest, do not fool yourself into thinking you are having fellowship with a God who says, I am light. I am pure and holy. I am self-existent. I am the one who establishes what it is to have fellowship with me. Because your walking in darkness cannot coexist with fellowship with God. The two do not go together. Walk in the light. Make it your practice to do what God says to do. Study his word, obey his will, ask him to help you obey it. Be committed to a community of believers to help you in that walk, walk in the light. Second implication of the fact that God is light is be humble about your sin. None of us are really eager to talk about our sin. We learn as we grow that there is indeed scripture's right when it calls us to be humble and transparent, but in our flesh, We're not eager to talk about our sin unless we have an excuse for it, unless it's somebody else that's caused our sin, unless somebody else has triggered us in some way, unless we have some worthwhile excuse for our sin. Otherwise, it's hard to talk about. Confession means admitting that God has a way that is right and true and just, and I'm missing it. I am willfully or by neglect disobeying it. Remember again, first century, the challenge that they're facing from this Gnostic teaching is that essentially your body's like an envelope. That's really all it does is it serves as an envelope for this spirit, and, and the spirit then remains pure despite what the body instinctively does. So that kind of teaching encourages people to say, I don't sin. No, I, that's not me. I'm not a sinner. And as verse 8 says, that is self-deception, We are disbelieving what God's word says, which is that fundamentally we are sinners in need of rescue, in need of being saved. In fact, to make that claim, verse 10 even says, is to call God a liar. Do not deny the reality of your own sin. Do not stop examining your own heart for impure motives and thoughts. Guard your heart. Ask God's spirit to help you see the things that he wants you to see. The the biblical antidote to this false teaching is what John writes in verse nine. Confess your sins. That's to be humble. The, the, the word for confess, you've probably heard this, the, the Greek word is homo legeo, homo meaning saved, uh, same I should say, homo same. And lego is the idea for word, that, that which is legeo, the, the pronunciation of a word. So same word. So confess, to confess is to say the same thing as God. To confess is to say, if God calls this sin, if God calls my thoughts or words or actions sin, then I will call it sin. I won't call it a mere shortcoming or a slip up or a weakness. It is breaking God's law. It is falling short of a requirement that God has established. And I need to be saying that this is what I've said or thought or done. We need to be humble about our sin. To say otherwise, verse 10, is to claim that God is a liar. If I deny that I have sinned against a holy God, if I rationalize my actions, if I blame shift it onto someone else, if I refuse to take responsibility for it, I am ultimately mocking a holy God and saying your word doesn't apply to me in this circumstance, your your law is not applying to me. So walk in the light and be humble about sin. Those are the implications of the fact that God is light, that God is morally pure and the source of eternal life. But John John also wants to say, brothers and sisters, you who are trusting in Christ, you who do believe this gospel, let me give you assurance. Let me not simply give you just the warning, but let me also give you hope. Because brothers and sisters, he says, if sin is what you've done, then take heart. Because Jesus cleanses sin. Jesus forgives. I've said that countless times to myself and to people in counseling, that sometimes we want to make the problems as complicated as can be and the causes and the roots and all of the issues going on. And there's times it's important to say, listen, if if sin is the problem here, if in some way you or someone else is disobeying God, the Bible speaks to that again and again. God has wisdom for that. He is a gracious and forgiving God. And if it's sin, God desires that you confess it so he may cleanse it and you begin the process of change, of transformation. Don't try to run and hide. That's what Adam and Eve did, right? God is walking into the garden and what do they do? They try to hide their nakedness somehow. And they can't, it's it's foolish. What he's urging us in verse nine is come to him. Find mercy in him. Say the same thing that he says about what you've done. Confess it to him and know that he is merciful because it says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a remarkable statement. That forgiveness in and of itself is a wonderful thing, to be forgiven. But when he says that the blood of Jesus actually acts as a cleanser to remove sin's stain. Isn't that the part that sometimes we, we get stuck with? We've come to the place of, of, of knowing what the truth is. I have confessed my sin, I have turned from my sin, and I know what scripture says about God forgiving, but it also says that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness actually even removes the stain. So when the light, when God's holiness and greatness exposes this ugly stain in my life and, and, and I want to say, no, I don't, I don't want to see that. God wants me to see it and to confess, I had this ugly stain. I was terrible to this person. I acted sinfully. I did this. I said this. I thought this. He wants us to do that so that out of the depths of his mercy, he can forgive us and cleanse us. That is amazing grace. Just as God's character is light, it's John's thesis, God is light. So there's the fundamental statement about God's character, no darkness in him at all. But just as that is what his nature is, the essence of God's nature is also that he is merciful. And we know that because if we go back to the Old Testament, when it foretold the coming of the new covenant, In Jeremiah 31, 34, through Jesus Christ, God said, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He will not bring our sin up against us. That's his commitment to not remembering it anymore is that it is forgiven. Despising sin and judging the guilty is God's nature but it is as much God's nature to wash away the sin of those who confess to him, of those who seek his forgiveness. It is just as much his nature to forgive and to cleanse those who repent and turn to him. In both cases, judging the guilty, the unrepentant, those who walk in darkness, and forgiving those who confess and turn to Jesus, in both cases, he is being faithful and just to his character. He is being who he says he is. And you see that last phrase in verse nine, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are honest, we are being humble about our sin, and confessing our sin, there are times when it feels like our battles with sin are really overwhelming. Like if we're keeping a tally, some days are just really bad, and we struggle in those days and we come to God, and we plead for forgiveness, and we confess our sin, and yet we still somehow have in our minds this sort of human level mentality that says, I think I've pushed it too far today. I feel like this has been too many times. In his grace, and by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God says, come to me. Because of what my son did, in dying on the cross, and shedding his blood for your sin because of his death on the cross, I will forgive your sin and I will remove the stain of all of it, all of your unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Brothers and sisters, it is effective in cleansing for all of eternity. So when you sin, don't look for an excuse, don't look to, to blame shift. Don't come up with some kind of rationalization. Don't run and hide. Run to your heavenly father who sent his son to take the sacrifice in your place and who now urges you and says, instead of saying, I didn't sin, I didn't do that, that's not me, I I don't know, just just run to me and say, I say what you say, God. I've done what you say I've done and I'm asking your forgiveness. Admit that it is an offense against God. Ask for grace and help to change. Take steps to deny your flesh and not repeat it. This isn't a game. Paul says we don't, we don't abound in sin so we can receive all the more grace. We still detest sin. We still seek to deny the flesh. We still ask for help to change. But we also know that there is glorious forgiveness because of what Jesus did in our place. Would you pray with me? God, we stand before you as the one who is, as Jesus declared, as John reports to us, you are light. You are what Isaiah experienced when he walked into this sanctuary and suddenly was hit with a view of that which is morally perfect, upright and holy in all of his ways, not a a hint of darkness, not so much as a shadow in that experience. And Lord, we come before you as those who, who know that we have sinned, who know that we have walked in darkness, who know that we have rebelled against you. And we come before you because you, who is light and holy and pure, call us to come. You tell us to come and to confess our sins because you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, help those here who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Help Some are, some are battling with areas of sin, habitual areas, areas that have perhaps just felt like life-dominating sort of areas of sin, and they are, they are asking for help and mercy and grace pray that even today, as we've been challenged to walk in the light, that you would work in the hearts of your people to, to renew the commitment to rely on your grace, but to deny the flesh, to, to turn from that sin, to, to, to change situations, to not keep walking into the same sort of circumstance, to ask for help from brothers and sisters, to, to do what's necessary to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk in the light. And Father, for myself and my brothers and sisters, we come to you this morning asking that your spirit would be at work in us, helping us to see ways that are wicked, ways that are neglectful, ways that are disobedient to you. Help us to see those and in humility to confess those. If we have sinned against others, we pray, Lord, that you would help us first to confess to you and then to go make right the wrongs. With others, to confess to them, to seek forgiveness as well from relationships around us that our sin has brought damage to. But help us first to see our offense against you, the fact that we have somehow embraced darkness instead of light, and then, Father, help us to believe your word, that when we have confessed, we have turned and sought your help, that you are faithful and just, that your forgiveness is sure, just as it was promised, that your cleansing is complete and the stain is removed. And Father, help us in doing so to give thanks and to meditate on the suffering of your son, Jesus Christ on the cross, of his shedding his blood in our place for our sin, so that we might be able to be forgiven and have fellowship with you and eternal life in your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.